Hi, everybody. Huh? I think so. Hi, everybody. So I told Laura that I was just going to come up here and, and launch into it. I wasn't going to preface with this is my first time or I'm nervous or anything like that. But I am going to share one piece of advice that Justin Monroe gave me. And that was he said, no matter what happens, at the very end, just take the mic, drop the mic, and depart the building. I thought that was good advice, but I said, if that happens, I probably won't come back. <laughs> so we'll see. So I'm going to introduce very briefly our sermon series. We're heading into Christmas, and most of you probably know that we're um, I'm not sure if this is the first Sunday of Advent or next Sunday. Thomas and I were having some denominational differences about this, but um, we're in the season of Advent, um, anticipating our celebration of the birth of Christ at Christmas, and also looking forward to the day that he comes again in, um, and will fulfill even more promises. Um, so what we're going to do for this sermon series is we're going to take the Christmas story, which a lot of us have heard again and again, um, and look at it from different angles. We've chosen some characters from the narrative. I'm going to speak about Joseph today. And over the next few weeks, we'll hear about Mary. We'll hear about the wise men and Herod. And we'll hear about um, the shepherds. So my assigned character is Joseph. And what I want to try to do is, is sort of tell the story through his eyes and see what we can learn there. And here's where I'm going with this. Um, a lot of what happened from my, a lot of my process the last few weeks was, you know, digging into the text and doing some research and so learning some things, which was fun. And so some of this will just be sharing with you guys uh, some of the things that I've learned. So I want to do a brief recap on what we know and what we don't know about Joseph of Nazareth, how he's presented in the Gospels. Then I'm going to talk briefly from our, or not too briefly, but I'm going to talk from our text um, about a couple things. One is the, the scandal of what's happening here. Um, it can be easy to be removed from it in a different culture in a different time. Um, so I want to dig into that a little bit. And then I want to talk also about the significance of Joseph of Nazareth. So here's a brief survey on what we know about Joseph um, from the scriptures. He's from the city of Nazareth, uh, from the region of Galilee. And I'm, I think Mike Spielman could come up and do a presentation having, did you go to Nazareth? Or, okay, good. So he knows more than I do. Um, but here's what I've, here's what I've gleaned about it. Um, Nazareth is most likely was a small town, 2,000 people or less. It's in this region called Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Um, more rural, less significant. It's sort of away from the halls of power in Jerusalem. Um, and it was something of a backwater, you know, small town. And um, in fact, when we have, we've seen in the Gospel of John, when Nathaniel, um, when Philip comes to Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus and says he's from Nazareth, Nathaniel's replies, you know, looking down on it, he says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's where Joseph is from. We know he's a carpenter by trade, although the Greek word carpenter could be more broadly interpreted as a skilled craftsman. Um, or an artisan. So it's likely in that geography, he probably worked with stone as much as he did with wood. Um, you know, maybe a lot of the houses there were built out of stone. We know from Matthew's genealogy um, that David traces, his, or Joseph traces his ancestry 
back through the line of David, King David, back to um, through the line of Abraham. We know that he was the husband of Mary. We know that he was the adoptive father of Jesus. Um, and we know that there were, that Jesus had brothers, at least one, two, three, four brothers, and at least a couple sisters. Most likely these were Joseph's children. Um, so when you look through, if you take a survey through the four gospels on Joseph, you see in the book of Matthew, where we're going to spend a lot of our time, um, it tells the story of Jesus's birth and his young childhood years, um, largely through the eyes of Joseph, largely through his perspective. Um, in the book of Matthew, Angels, as we read, appear to Joseph on three separate occasions. When you look at the book of Luke, you get a fuller version of the Christmas story. There's a larger cast of characters. Um, Luke also adds some additional detail about Jesus' childhood when he was taken to the temple as an infant, when he and his parents went and they lost him at the temple when he was 12. Joseph shows up in those episodes as well. But in the Gospel of Luke, the angels come to Zechariah and Mary and the shepherds. They don't come to Joseph in Luke's account. Um, Joseph is largely a silent player. The Gospel of Mark doesn't mention Joseph at all. The Gospel of John mentions Joseph, but only, I believe it's one reference where Jesus is called the son of Joseph. Isn't this the son of Joseph? And none of the Gospels ever record Joseph uttering a word. Church tradition uh, calls him quiet Joseph or the shy member of the Holy Family. And then he fades from the narrative altogether. Presumably he died before Jesus entered his public ministry because we never see Joseph around in any of the description of Jesus teaching the cross, the resurrection, any of that. So I'm gonna narrow down now to Matthew chapter one. And I'm gonna read from verse 18 and 19 again. Maybe Dan can put it up here. And I'm going to take out some words here because I want us to feel kind of the weight of what's happening from Joseph in Joseph's shoes. So I'm going to take out the words from the Holy Spirit because he doesn't know this yet. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, period. Um, let Let me continue. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So if we pay close attention to this text, um, a couple things are clear. One is Mary is pregnant, and two, Joseph wants out of this arrangement. He's trying to figure out, you know, what to do and how to get out of this. What's not so clear to a modern reader is when you read it carefully, why is Joseph called Mary's husband? And how can Joseph actually divorce her when they're not yet married? And so the answer there is a little bit of cultural context. Um, So I'm going to take you back to first century uh, Israel. Uh, One commentator said that at this time and place, marriage was held to be a far too serious step to be left to the dictates of the human heart. And in that culture, marriages were arranged. And this is how it would usually happen. Um, I'm gonna talk about this word betrothal. Uh, In the ESV version, there's a little footnote, and it says betrothal means legally pledged to be married, to be married. Now we don't have 
exactly this concept in our in our modern society. Um, so this is this is how it happened. Uh, the parents of the couple arranged the marriage. The fathers of the two families uh, would engage the couple often in childhood. The families knew each other and they thought that would be a good match. Later in life, the couple would become betrothed. Um, this usually happened when the girl was a teenager. The man was often a bit older. Um, and the betrothal was the step in the process that was the nearest step to marriage. They weren't formally married yet, but they were promised to each other. Um, effectively, it ratifies the previous engagement. Um, during the engagement period, either party could actually break the engagement um, if they were unwilling to step into marriage. But during betrothal, it was legally binding. This time period lasted one year. During this time, they were called husband and wife. During this time, you had to get a legal divorce to get out of it. But the woman still lived with her, parent, with her father's family. The couple did not live together, and they didn't sleep together during this betrothal time. So here's where we're at. Mary is betrothed to, Mary, to Joseph. Mary is pregnant, and Joseph's not the father. Only Joseph knows that to be the case for sure, because he hasn't touched her. Um, even in our, in our day and age, if you have someone, if a fiance turns out to be pregnant, someone else's child, that's scandalous, even in our day and age. How much more so in the context of this first century rural, small town, uh, religious, conservative environment? So Mary's in a tough spot here. By the way, in Luke's account, we see the angel come to Mary before all this happens. And before she gets pregnant, the, the angel basically, basically tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and this child will be from God. Um, but Matthew reminds us that Joseph's in a tough spot too. Mary was the woman that he had promised to love through betrothed already. She was going to be eventually the father of his children, the one who would manage his household. Um, and she was found out, um, pregnant, apparently caught in some sort of cultural, in, uh, sorry, sexual indiscretion. And he knew, even if nobody else did, that the baby wasn't his. Uh, so both her reputation and his own was on the line here. Matthew doesn't tell us how Joseph feels at this point, but we can imagine he feels betrayed. He might feel lied to. Maybe Mary tried to tell him that an angel showed up to her, and you know this is actually the baby from the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's wrestling, you know, trying to figure out can he believe that. Um, but we get some insight into his thought process and his motivations. Read with me. Look up at uh, verse nineteen, and it says, "And her husband Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, and resolved to divorce her quietly." So two things from this. One, it says Joseph is a just man. He is faithful to God. Um, he's faithful to the righteous requirements of God's law. Um, on the one hand, he couldn't simply disregard this law, and to marry Mary would seem to do just this. It would also seem to admit guilt on his part, where he knows he's not guilty. Um, he, knows the, he knows the law. He knows from Deuteronomy that unfaithfulness of a betrothed woman is treated just the same as unfaithfulness of a married woman. And in fact, this is a capital offense. Mary could be put to death for this. 
But then we see that other phrase that says he's unwilling to put her to shame. Joseph is also faithful to the compassion and mercy of God's law. Um, and so weighing these threads, he resolved to do what he thought was best for everybody involved. Um, justice and mercy coming together. He concludes a private divorce, a quiet dismissal. That's the way to go here. And then something happens. We have a turning point. Joseph is now provided with that vital piece of information that Mary had from the beginning, and we as the reader already know. If you look at verse 20 and 21, it says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'm going to let Brian Moon at a later date unpack for us the mysteries of the Incarnation and the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity and how all that's working. But suffice it to say, for our purposes, um, that a visit from an angel and this proclamation from God, this revelation, changes Joseph's course of action. Um, he knows that this is God definitively working here. Um, and what we see from here on out through the text is this pattern of Joseph's obedience, uh, prompt, simple, faithful obedience. So the significance of Joseph, um, again, again, think about how Matthew presents this story. Uh, verse 18 starts, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. But there's actually no description here of the nativity. There's no labor and delivery. There's no in, none of that. Um, it's actually told more through Joseph's eyes, whereas Luke's gospel is through Mary's eyes. Um, and Joseph is important to this story. There's a reason that Matthew tells the account the way that he does. Um, one of the things Matthew is doing in his writing is making a case for Christ, making a case for Jesus as the Messiah, um, the one who would come and fulfill the prophecies that Israelites were waiting for. Um, and two things about Joseph that fit right into this theme. One is his obedience. One is his lineage. So on Joseph's obedience, um, we see this pattern, and as Terry read to us. Three times an angel appears to Joseph, gives him directions. Three times Joseph precisely obeys those directives. And three times what comes out of this is actually God's purposes, his prophecies, are fulfilled. Um, so I want to walk very quickly through um, the three, three fulfillments that we read about. Um, and Dan, if you just want to put up verse 20 and 21. And what I'm going to do is edit a little bit for the sake of time and um but just show what i want to show you is the parallels here between what the angel says and what joseph does so in matthew 1 20 through 25 um, the angel says son of david do not fear to take mary as your wife 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. By the way, that you is a singular directive to Joseph there. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. And in verse 24, we see the obedience. Um, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. That was the first thing he said. The second thing was, she'll bear a son, and this is what Joseph did. He knew her not. He did not consummate the marriage. He, He maintained her purity so that the virgin birth would, you know, have validity. Uh, until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And the prophecy, Matthew points to this as fulfilled prophecy. This is from Isaiah 7:14, and Matthew quotes it in verse 23. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, it's easy to think there, okay, Mary got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she had the baby, but Joseph was responsible in part for making sure she was still a virgin when Jesus was born. Um, we see the same pattern happen again in chapter 2, where the angel tells Joseph to rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you. And then there's a parallel verse where it says, almost verbatim, verbatim, that's what Joseph did. Um, and again, Matthew points to um, some patterns in the Old Testament that he says are fulfilled. Um, This pattern of, you know, in a way, Jesus um, reenacting, you know, the the exodus out of Egypt. Um, And then finally, at the end of chapter 2, the angel comes again. Again, Joseph obeys precisely, and um, again, we see fulfilled prophecy as a point, as a a result of that. And then one more, whereas this one doesn't follow the exact same literary pattern, um, chapter 2 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And um, that also fulfilled a prophecy from Micah 5.2, which I think, Dan, you have that? It's not in there? Okay. Um, When the wise men went to... Herod and said, we're looking for this king who has been born. And Herod inquires of all the scribes and uh, people that know the Old Testament law. They all know. They're all anticipating this this king will be born in in Bethlehem, Um, which is interesting. It's just another way that's really um, reflective of the way God is divinely orchestrating this because the reason they're in Bethlehem is because Joseph obeyed God and took Mary and took this son basically adopted the son and took Mary, who, you know, at this point, it's either her reputation or his on the line, um, but he obeyed. And they went to Bethlehem because that's where his family was from, and he had to go and register there. And so she was with him, and that's where Jesus was born. Um, That brings me to my next point here. Um, about Joseph's lineage. Um, Joseph's obedience to take Mary as his wife and the child as his own serves another important messianic purpose. Um, Again, going back to Matthew and his purpose here, he starts with the genealogy. Um, In the very first sentence, he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And one of the things Matthew is doing here is through fulfilled prophecy, through um, this lineage that he lays out in the first chapter, he's making a case that Jesus is, has all the qualifications and meets all of the prophecies to be the promised one. Um, Son of Abraham. 
Abraham is the one of whom God promised that he would raise up um, a people, Israel, who would be a blessing to the entire world. Son of David, David is the one that God promised that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. Um, Matthew shows throughout his gospel how these promises come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And he begins with how Jesus comes from this right lineage to fulfill these promises. And you follow the lineage down, and it goes through you know, many, many generations here with this pattern of Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so on, father of, father of. And you get down to verse 18, and it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and it breaks the pattern, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, called the Christ. When the angel comes to David in verse 20, he calls him explicitly Joseph, son of David. Except for this one reference right here in Matthew, every other reference to son of David in the Gospels is to Jesus himself. David has royal blood, or Joseph has royal blood. He's from the house of David. Um, In Luke's Gospel, the same thing. Uh, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So it points out, Joseph is from the house of David. Um, Luke one thirty two says, He will be great and will be called the most son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom will be no end. Which if you look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, this is a prophecy that's echoed in, in the angel's proclamation there. So what we see here is while Mary is certainly the virgin that was prophesied that would bear God's son, it's Joseph who's presented as the one with this kingly and messianic lineage. Uh, Old Testament prophets had promised that a king, a Messiah, would come from the line of Judah and from the line of David to reign forever. And Jesus has this right lineage, son of David, son of Abraham, and he gets it through Joseph, his adoptive father. In this Jewish context of a patriarchal culture, legal inheritance and family status were bestowed through the father, through the father's line, and Jesus had all these right qualifications through Joseph. Again, this was only possible because Joseph was obedient to the word of the Lord even in the appearance of scandal, to take Mary as his wife and the child as his own, thus conferring upon Jesus this legal status of a descendant of David. So I'll wrap up. Joseph is significant, as we've seen, for his obedience, for his lineage, and just this interplay between his uh, obedience to the Lord and the Lord working it together in his divinely orchestrated um, way that Joseph played this role in these promises and these purposes of God bringing a savior to the world. And so we see that in Matthew. And yet, again, as we mentioned, once Jesus is no longer a child, we don't hear about Joseph again. It's not even that Joseph becomes a minor character in the narrative. It's that he fades from the narrative altogether. Around the age of 30, Jesus steps into his public ministry. 
and enters fully into his calling as Messiah, the King, the one who, as Matthew says, will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is more than the son of Joseph. In fact, he's more than the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the son of the Most High, the son of God. Anytime that Jesus makes a reference to Father in the rest of the Gospels, we're always in reference to his heavenly Father. So the New Testament starts out with this certain attention on Joseph, the perspective through his eyes. And indeed, in the Gospel, we see Joseph portrayed as a good man, just, caring, faithful to God, obeying the Lord, taking care of this most important family that God has entrusted to him. And I think that Joseph's faithfulness and obedience to God in the face of scandal, even physical danger, are something, it's an example for us to emulate. But the ultimate focus of Matthew and the Gospels and our lives is always Jesus, the promised one. Joseph is important to the narrative because Jesus is important. I think the conclusion that John the Baptist makes about Jesus when he's losing his disciples and they're all following after Jesus, he makes this conclusion. I think it can be applied to Joseph's life as well. This is from John 3.27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. And in John 3.30, he says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And I think the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus is fitting as well. And this can be applied by all of us as we ponder the incarnation this Advent. John 1.34 says, as we can all say, we have seen and have borne witness that this, Jesus, is the Son of God.